Parsha Shoftim deals largely with authority in the Jewish community, both religious and political. Towards the outset of the Parsha, we have a well-known section that deals with specifically the rabbinic authority and the religious authority of the Sanhedrin specifically. And the Torah tells us in a very famous pasuk in Perak Yudzayin, Pasuk Yudalef, Whatever teaching they teach you, whatever ruling or judgment they issue, you must do, you must follow. Do not deviate from any word that they tell you, right or left. And this is clearly investing the rabbinic authority with tremendous amount of authority. What is interesting and noticed by the various Mepharshim is the fact that the last two words of the Pasuk seem to be extra. What is added by those words, yamin usmol, right or left? Clearly the authority and the need to listen to them would have been just as accurately and fully conveyed if the Torah just said, So why does the Torah add on, why does the verse add on those extra words, right or left? So Rashi, basing himself on a comment of the Medrash in the Sifrei, explains very famously, even if they get something wrong, they say about the right that it's left or about the left that it's right, even then you must listen to them in absolute authority. This is, as I say, the simple understanding of Rashi based on his citation of the Sifrei. However, various Mepharshim over the millennium have asked any one of one, two, or perhaps three different questions against Rashi. Number one is just logically, how is it possible? Why would it be? Why would the Torah want us to listen to the Chachamim if we knew they were wrong? Number two is if you look in the actual Sifrei, as I mentioned, the source and the origin of Rashi's comment is a Medrash, but if you look in the Medrash itself, there's a slight different formulation. Rashi seems to have just paraphrased, but the actual uh, Sifrei seems to have a critical difference. There, the actual Sifrei is, Afilu ma'arin bi'einehem, if it appears in your eyes that they made a mistake. But the clear implication is not that they actually made a mistake, but you think differently than they do. You think that they're making a mistake, but not that you know for sure. And therefore the implication is that if, if in fact, you knew for sure they were making a mistake, maybe you wouldn't have to listen. And in fact, number three, that is the conclusion of the Yerushalmi, a different rabbinic source, the Talmud Yerushalmi in Masech Harios, in which according to them, the Yerushalmi, the addition of the words Yaminu Smol is specifically Dafka coming to teach us that you only have to listen to them when they get it right, when they say that the right is right and the left is left. So according to that source, it's clear that you don't have to listen to them if they're making a mistake. So why logically and based on these other sources does it seem like Rashi is saying you have to listen to them even if you know they made a mistake? So the truth is that there are various mafarshim of Rashi um, who suggest, based on these questions, that you have to reinterpret Rashi in one way or another. And that's uh, worth keeping in mind. What is interesting is the presentation of Ramban. Ramban, in a very characteristically brilliant and insightful piece, even though it's not that long, but there's a lot going on, the Ramban addresses, I think, these issues. But as I say, it's somewhat complicated and very, very com- you know, sophisticated, because even though it's not a long piece, I would break the Ramban down into three different sections. And in the beginning... And the end of the piece, both in the beginning and the end, Ramban seems to make clear that he thinks the Pasuk is talking about a situation in which you think that the Chachamim made a mistake, that it appears that they made a mistake, but not that they actually did. Towards the beginning, uh, the Ramban says, You think that they made a mistake. 
or towards the end of the piece, the Ramban quotes the Sifrei, which we mentioned before. The Sifrei itself says, Ma'arin Beinehem. It appears that they made a mistake, but not that they made a mistake. Moreover, the Ramban is explicit that the Chachamim are the beneficiaries of a special Hashkacha, a special divine providence, a divine spirit that helps guarantee that they won't make a mistake. Ruach Hashem Yisbarach al-Masharsei Mekadsho lo yazav eschasidav li'olam nishmeru menatos menemichshol. They are protected with hashkacha and divine presence and divine spirit not to, to allow them not to make a mistake. So in that case, the Pasuk is again understood that even if you think they're making a mistake, trust them that in fact they're not making a mistake. Uh, they have hashkacha, they're learned, they're brilliant, etc. But the main thing is that they have hashkacha from Hashem who's helping them and therefore trust them that it's probably you made the mistake, not them. However, in the middle of those two things, the Ramban actually seems to go with Rashi's approach, and in fact seems to say that you have to listen to the Chachamim, afilu yitu, even if they make a mistake. Now, while it's not 100% clear if the Ramban is just quoting Rashi here, uh, or if he is on some level adopting the position of Rashi, but either way, it begs the question, why would it be? Why would we have to listen to the rabbis afilu yitu, even if you know they made a mistake? And the Ramban addresses this question explicitly. And the Ramban actually gives a very profound and important answer. Says the Ramban, it's the nature of Torah, certainly Torah Shebechtav, the way it was given over, it's finite, it can be in places terse and ambiguous. And the nature of Torah is that there are going to be different people who over the centuries will interpret and reinterpret and disagree with each other on how to exactly understand the psukim and what the Torah and therefore halacha wants from us. Lo yishtavu hadeos, hanoladim, says the Ramban. There's no way everyone, all the Chachamim are going to agree. And therefore, if we didn't have a central address, if we didn't have a single address, a single authority to the end to decide what is the right and wrong interpretation? We'd have complete disunity. We even have chaos. We wouldn't know what the Torah is, what the Judaism is, what halacha is. We'd have no way of moving forward. It'd be uh, you know, paralysis by analysis. There'd be too many different interpretations. We wouldn't know how to move forward. And therefore, the Torah tells us, in fact, lo tasur. Even if it turns out, it's unlikely. But if it turns out they made a mistake... It's still in the big, in the scheme, greater scheme of things, in the big picture. It's more important to vest central authority in this rabbinic body and listen to them, even in the likely case they made a mistake, because the alternative would be to be have complete chaos and a total lack of unity. And therefore, it's something very, very fascinating that emerges from the Ramban. We have on the one hand what seems to be his view that they won't make a mistake, and therefore it's just about the appearances. But we also have an interpretation that even if they did make a mistake, it's still better to listen to them in order to preserve Jewish unity. Parsha Shoftim introduces us not only to the religious leadership of the Jewish people, but also to the political leadership structure envisioned by the Torah as well. And therefore, we read in the beginning of the Sheni Aliyah and Parak Yedzayin, Pasuk Tezvav, after the Jewish people have entered and settled the land of Israel, Som Tasim Melech Asher Yivcha Hashem Lokecha Bo. You shall sorely appoint for yourself a king who Hashem will choose from amongst you. And this Pasuk serves as the basis of the mitzvah of appointing a king, as the Gemara in Masechta Sanhedrin, Davchaf, and the Rambam at the beginning of Hilchus Malachim codifies, when the Jewish people enter, conquer, and settle the land of Israel, they are then obligated as a nation, as a whole, to fulfill three mitzvot, appointing a king, as we just read, eradicating a Amalek, and eventually building the base of Migdash. So the first half of the Pasuk 
Som Tasim Alach Melech is the source of that very important mitzvah. However, in a fascinating passage, the Oznaim Torah, by Rav Zalman Saratskin, he explains the second half of the Pasuk, the continuation of the Pasuk, as, in his opinion, a subtle a description and allusion to what qualifications, what characteristics we should be looking for when we have to choose a king. What is important? What should we think about when we choose a king? So the continuation of the Pasuk reads as follows. Bekerav achecha tasim this person, this king, should be somebody who comes from amidst your brothers. That's who you should have as a king. It cannot be a person who is a nachri, who is not your brother, who is not achicha. And in this brief passage, the Oznayim Torah makes three points on those words, on that second half of the Pasuk. The first point he makes is, he just assumes that this second half of the Pasuk is describing a situation when there are no longer any Nevi'im. Prophecy has ceased to exist. Now, I'm not aware of any earlier authority who makes this point. It could be that it, there are other Mepharshim who say that. I just didn't see it. But I think even without a source, and he does not cite a source for his assumption, but I think it seems, to, in his opinion, obvious, because if the second half of the Pasuk is telling us what to look for in a king, well, that only is relevant if we don't have a Navi, because if there's a Navi, then we don't need to know what to look for. The Navi will tell us who the right person is to be the king. In fact, that's clearly what the first part of the Pasuk is referring to when it says, Asher yifchar Hashem Hashem will choose who the king is. And how will we know who Hashem has chosen? Through the Navi. So if the second half of the Pasuk is talking about what we should be looking for, obviously, says Rav Zaman Saratskin, is talking about when there is no longer Nevuah. That's point number one. And then he says, okay, well, what do we need to know? What do we look for? So he says, well, the continuation of the Pasuk, so the first thing we read is that this king, this person should be, Mikara from amidst your brothers. What does that mean exactly? So he quotes the short observation of the Medrash in the Sifrei, who says that Mikar Vachacha means Hagar Be'eret Yisrael, someone who lives in Eretz Yisrael. In other words, Mikar Vachacha doesn't just mean someone who is coming from a large group of Jews, which hypothetically could be anywhere in Chutzlaretz, but rather Mikar Vachacha in the most Achacha, in the most formal and intense sense in Israel, which is Kolkulo, where Achacha are, where the Jewish people are, so someone who's coming from there, the midst of that, Mikar Vachacha, that is who the king will be. Now, why is that important? Why is that necessary? So Rav Sarutskin assumes that even though we're talking about a political leader, the king, but this is describing not the political benefits of having a king coming from Eretz Yisrael, but rather the religious virtues. After all, we know that Chazal is replete with many, many different statements, not only extolling the religious virtues of Eretz Yisrael, but in some cases even harshly uh, criticizing the situation outside of Eretz Yisrael. And in fact, he quotes one of the more famous ones, which describes someone who lives outside of Israel as as if he or she doesn't have a God. And even if we assume that that is a hyperbolic statement on the part of Chazal, its intent is still clearly conveyed. And that is that the place for maximal religious growth and a relationship with Hashem is only in Eretz Yisrael. And whatever one could accomplish in Chutzlaretz, there's a certain limit that does not allow you to truly have a relationship with Hashem the way one could have, potentially, if you live in Eretz Yisrael. And Rav Sarutskin assumes that that's also why it's important to have a king coming from Eretz Yisrael. Because even though he's going to be the political leader, but the political leader of the Jewish people should be a religious role model as well. After all, he says, 
Eich yimloch al Yisrael kadoshim. How could anyone think that someone who didn't live in Eretz Yisrael, who has that ability to maximally benefit from the spiritual properties of the land of Israel, how could someone who didn't have that possibly be, possibly be the leader of the holy Jewish people? Now that fascinating insight that the political leader needs to be someone who has access to and is tapped into the spiritual nourishment of Eretz Yisrael is confirmed and only strengthened by Srotskin's explanation of the continuation and the conclusion of the Pasuk, which we read that the person who you choose cannot be Ish Nachriya Sherlo Achichahu. And we would have simply understood that that is coming to preclude the possibility of a non-Jew, a Nachri, a Goy, being the king. However, Srotskin says that cannot be what the Torah means because it's obvious who would have thought? What kind of havamin would anyone have that you could appoint a non-Jew to be the king of the Jewish people? That a mitzvah of the Torah could be fulfilled by appointing a non-Jew to be our king? Rather, he says, that can't be what it means. The Torah, in fact, assumes obviously the king is going to be Jewish. And here the Apostle is telling us that you can't appoint someone who is a, he explains poetically, a nachri l'ruach Yisrael v'toraso. Nachri literally means a stranger. And here, says Rav Srotskin, it means a stranger, someone who is estranged from the spirit, the values of the Torah and the Jewish people. Someone who is unfortunately not particularly religious and observant. That person who may have plenty of other skills, maybe a great leader, and a political visionary, and a great organizer or speaker, really, sincerely, nevertheless is ineligible to be the king. Someone who is a nachri l'ruach Yisrael v'taraso, that person simply is not the right role model, cannot be the leader of the Jewish people. In fact, he points out that the Targum, Yonas and Ben Uziel, actually in his Aramaic Targum, his translation of this Pasuk, says on the word Nachri, he explains that to be Gever Chiloni, using that similar term we're familiar with in the modern context of a non-religious or secular Jew. And therefore he says, anyone who is Mitnaheig, not al Torah, that person could not possibly be the king. In other words, you have a fascinating interpretation that the king, who's the political leader, must be a religious role model who lives in Eretz Yisrael and who lives al Ruach HaTorah. The opening of our parasha, we read, This is the command to set up a legal system. Shoftim, judges, shotrim, officers who will enforce the rulings of the judges. Have to be set up in every location, in every community. A number of commentaries, going back to the Orachayim HaKadosh, ask that there seems to be an extra word in the Pasuk. Set up judges and officers for yourself in every community. Why do we need the extra word? Wouldn't the Pasuk be just as intelligible and readable if it says shofti v'shotu in titain b'chol sharecha the, the word l'cha doesn't add anything it seems to be unnecessary so among the answers that are given I'd like to share the approach suggested by Rav Moshe Feinstein in his Sefer Darash Moshe where he suggests that in fact on the simple outward level of the Pasuk as describing the uh, legal system perhaps the word l'cha is unnecessary but rather he suggests it was added because there's a deeper second layer of meaning that is deeply resonant and significant in this Pasuk. That is not just referring to the actual legal system with real judges and courts, rather telling us something that is relevant for each and every one of us, every man and every woman, in our own personal religious lives. That is to say, says Ramosha, Shofti v'shotrim titein l'cha. You must make yourself l'cha. Titein l'cha. Make yourself into a judge. Make yourself into an officer. What does that mean? Says Ramosha, we each have to become judges. Not necessarily to judge other people. Much more important is to judge ourselves. Don't go through life without thinking, but rather have clear values, have clear goals, have clear standards, and then have the courage 
to be honest and think about, am I living up to my standards? Am I living up to my values? Give an honest judgment. Give an honest evaluation of your behavior. Don't just go through your life without thinking. And if it turns out that we have fallen short, and we all do from time to time, then be a shoter. Figure out practical ways in which you can help actualize and execute that judgment. In other words, help figure out ways practically to live up to the values where the shofet, where you judged yourself as falling short. This very beautiful and original and creative idea that Rav Moshe Feinstein suggests, he takes actually much further, and he gives a number of examples of halachos, which are very important methods and guidelines for an actual judge in a real based in, in a Jewish legal court, but Rav Moshe here, like he does with the broader point, he shows how they have a secondary, deeper level of meaning as it relates to each and every person in their own religious life with their own religious growth. So for example, says Rav Moshe, just like sometimes a Jewish court will impose the obligation of a shvua, a need for one of the litigants to take a vow or an oath, so too says our motion when we're judging ourselves in that spiritual sense, in the religious sense, sometimes we may feel the need and it may be appropriate to verbally commit to something. That's like a form of a shvua. We are verbally declaring something like a person might do when they take an oath. Sometimes it's enough to just think uh, or in our heart, uh, that we want to do something or not do something. But says Ramosha, sometimes if we're really being honest, we'll realize that it'll be much better and much more effective if we take a shvua, so to speak, if we verbally declare our commitment. Or to take another example that Ramosha gives, the bedrock of any legal system is that the court cannot show any favoritism, and certainly the judges cannot be bribed by any one of the litigants. Says Ramosha, this is true as well when we are judging ourselves. We're all excellent, fantastic defense attorneys when it comes to defending and rationalizing our own behavior. But that's a mistake, says Ramosha. That's kind of a, sh- a show of favoritism. We very much like, we love the litigant because we love ourselves. And therefore we're showing favoritism to that person. And we're giving that person maybe an unnecessary and overly generous benefit of the doubt because of our personal bias towards the person, towards ourselves. That's not appropriate. Similarly, says Ramosha, we are often bribed. A bribe doesn't just come in the form of the uh, you know, cliched wad of cash in the envelope. But it also are, there are many other subtle forms in which a, a judge can benefit from one litigant or another and therefore have their judgment skewed. So too, says Ramosha, if we are enjoying a certain course of behavior, a certain action, that in a certain sense is a bribe because it's going to be very hard for us to honestly evaluate whether that's appropriate or not for us because we're really getting a benefit from that action. We're really being bribed by it, so to speak. And even though it's very, very hard to not show favoritism and not be bribed, nevertheless, as the Pasuk says two verses later, Tzedek Tzedek Tirdov. We shall truly pursue righteousness and fairness. Says our Moshe, that's not only the calling card of the actual Jewish legal system to pursue righteousness and fairness, but that also is true when a person is judging him or herself. We have to do it as tzedek tzedek. We have to do it honestly and fairly without showing favory and certainly not being bribed. So this is one beautiful explanation of our Moshe Feinstein and when she takes a pasuk, which seems to be a very important pasuk about the Jewish legal system, but in fact shows that it's not just for the community and the, the lawyers and the judges, so to speak, of the community, but rather relates to each and every one of us with a deeply resonant spiritual message, something that I think is relevant for us throughout the year, but especially now so close to Rosh Hashanah. A similar phenomenon occurs just a few psukim later in Pasuk Chavbez when we are told, Lo Don't offer a carbon, a sacrifice on a matzeva because God hates that. What's a matzeva? A single stone altar. As opposed to a mezbeah, which is totally kosher and legitimate, that has two stones. Matzeva has one stone, and God hates that. Why does he hate that? So Rashi explains because even though the avos, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov used to offer sacrifices on a matzeva, but in the intervening years after they did so, but before the Torah was given, the pagans and idolaters who lived in Canaan, they started using the matzeva for their idolatrous purposes. Therefore it became hated in the eyes of God, and therefore when he gave us the Torah in Harsinah, 
he told us we cannot use those anymore. Comes along once again, and Moshe Feinstein, he says, I don't understand. Who cares if the Goyim started using it in the interim? Who cares if pagans are doing it? If it was a method of religious observance that was used by Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, why can't we do it? If God loves when Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov offered a carbon on a matzeva, why wouldn't he love when we do it? What's the difference that the Goyim are also doing it? We're doing it because Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov used to do it. So in order to answer this question, says Ramosha Feinstein, you have to understand what happened at Harsinai. It wasn't just when we got the Torah that Hashem introduced specific rules, a list of 613 do's and don'ts. It was that, but it's much more than that, says Ramosha. By giving the Torah to Harsinai, Hashem created an expectation of constant religious growth, striving, and aspiration, of always trying to go mala mala from one level to the next. And there's a notion that it's never enough, no matter how much we've done, even if after 70 years of mitzvot and living a good moral and ethical life, there's always still more you can do. A person might be deceived, says Ramosha, but the idea of rov zuchuyot, the idea that it all goes by the majority, and when I die, as long as I did more mitzvot than averos, I did more good deeds than sins, that's okay. Says Ramosha, that's true only for a person who's constantly striving till his or her last breath. Then we add it all up and we go by the majority. But if a person at some earlier premature stage just decides, that's it, it's enough, I did all I need to do, and then they're just going to coast the rest of their life. So their Moshe, someone who has that attitude, all their missiles are null and void and they count for nothing. That's the prohibition of a matzeva, one stone, that's it. We need to be like a mezbeach, two stones, constantly striving, constantly growing, trying to get closer to Hashem. In assembling the Jewish army for battle, the Torah tells us that there are a number of deferments, a number of categories of individuals, that if they meet certain criteria, they are exempt from going to war. And in Perak Chaf, Pasuk Chet, one of the people, one of the categories of people that we are told who gets such a deferment is someone who is Hayarei Varach HaLevav, someone who is scared and faint-hearted. Fascinatingly, the Mishnah in Masech Sota describes a machlokes between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yossi Aglili what exactly we are describing, what type of fear is exempt from battle. Rabbi Kiva says, Kimashma'o. The Torah is being very realistic. A soldier who has even more than the natural and normal level of fear, a soldier who himself is so scared and faint-hearted that he won't be able to fight properly, not only is he unhelpful to the battle cause, but in fact he's a negative influence because fear is contagious. And therefore, someone who really is too scared to fight Better to give that person a deferment and exempt him from battle. However, more relevant, I think, to a message for us is the opinion of Rav Yossi who explains that we're not describing someone who's fearful of the actual battle per se, but rather, scared because of his sins. And it's clear that the intent of Rav Yossi is to describe a person who has sinned, apparently, seriously or continuously, and that person is scared, but not just scared because of battle in the way we typically imagine, or the way Rabbi Kiva described it, but he's specifically scared because he understands that although Hashem could punish him at any point, Hashem could strike him down at a moment's notice, even when he least expects it because of his past sins, but nevertheless, it's more plausible and perhaps in his mind more likely then if Hashem really is upset at him, and again, this is a person who understands about himself that Hashem has reason to be upset at him, then it's more plausible that if he goes out to battle and he's in a naturally and objectively dangerous situation, that would be a very easy and opportune time for Hashem to punish him for his sins. And therefore, even if it's not the most sound thing theologically, 
But psychologically, such a person might be too scared to go to battle and might feel safer if they stay home. Now again, it's not the most coherent theological uh, assumption because obviously God could strike the person down and punish the person even if he's at home and in the safety of his own bed, in the comfort of his own bed. But nevertheless, psychologically, I think we could all understand that a person who really is worried about being punished by Hashem might feel like going out to battle is the last place he wants to be. And says Rabbi Yaglili, that is the person who the Torah is exempting. Now what's fascinating is that the Gemara, in commenting on this opinion of Rabbi Yaglili, wants to know what type of sins did this soldier violate such that he is so scared that Hashem will punish him and that he gets a deferment and an exemption from battle. And the Gemara, in fact, gives examples of Averos Dirabonon. For example, Hasach Bein Tefila if a man has already put on his tefillin shalyad, has already made the bracha, and now he's in the process of putting on his tefillin shalrosh, he's not allowed to talk in between and in the middle of that process. If he talks, that's wrong, that's a sake. But to be blunt, we're talking at worst about an iser derabanan, a rabbinic transgression. And yet, according to the Gemara, it is this or a similar type of era which would already be sufficient for a person to pull out the deferment card, I'm exempt card, because he's scared that Hashem might punish him. This amazing Gemara yields a very powerful question, and I believe an even more powerful answer, from the famed Kutzker Rebbe. In the collection of the Kutzker's ideas on the Torah, the Sefer called Ohel Torah, on our Parsha, the Kutzker asks a very basic and fundamental and really obvious question, at least obvious once he asks it, on our Gemara, on our Biosiaglili, on this din. If even violating a single Isser Darabonon is enough to exempt a person from battle because of his high sin quotient, so to speak, exactly how big was the Jewish army? Who could possibly go to war if the bar is so high? Or between some kind of a hefsake. How many people could honestly look in the mirror and say, I don't even have that in my closet? I don't even have that skeleton in the closet. The only soldiers who go to battle are people who don't even violate Isiri Durabanan. The only people who can go to war are people who are so holy and so pure, they don't even have a hefsek in Isidurabanan in their ledger. Umi Yomar Zachiti Libi, says the Kutzker, who could possibly think that they're that holy and pure? In other words, how big is the Jewish army, according to Yaglili? If everyone who even did an Isidurabanan is exempt, how is it possible we'd have a battle? What's going on? How is it possible to understand this at face value? And because of this question, that yields to an unbelievable, I think, and penetrating and original insight of the Kotzker. He says, who are we talking about? We're talking about someone, he says, who of course did a sin, yes, but we're talking about a person who's now a Yare Hashem, who now is Eino Over Chas V'Shalom, Shumavera. He's not sinning anymore. He already did tshuva. And yet, despite the fact that he already did tshuva, he's haunted by the guilt of his previous activities. As the Lashon of the Mishnah was, as Rav Yossi Aglili said, he's misyari min ha'averos shebiado. Literally, the sins that are still in his hand explains the Kutzker because he can't let go. He's stuck. These Averos are stuck in his hands, even though he did tshuva, even though he's not transgressing anymore, even though he really did rehabilitate himself. He's haunted by his past. He can't let go of the feelings of guilt that are accompanying him night and day, because of his past indiscretions. This, says the Kutzker, leads to a person becoming depressed and so spiritually imbalanced and insecure 
He's Eino Osetov Haba. If you can't let go of the past, you can't produce a better future. And somebody like that says the Kotzker, Eino Rashai Lelech He doesn't have the right chizuk, he doesn't have the proper perspective. We don't want him on the battlefield. And this is obviously a very powerful idea which we should all think about on the eve of Rosh Chodesh Elul. And that is, of course, Chuva requires us to confront our past. But we can't become paralyzed by our past. A healthy Avodah Hashem is based on a balance between past and future. And this soldier failed that test. In assembling the Jewish army for battle, the Torah tells us that there are a number of deferments, a number of categories of individuals that if they meet certain criteria, they are exempt from going to war. And in Perak Chaf, Pasuk Chet, one of the people, one of the categories of people that we are told who gets such a deferment is someone who is Hayarei Barach HaLevav, someone who is scared and faint-hearted. Fascinatingly, the Mishnah in Masecha Sota describes a machlokes between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yossi Aglili what exactly we are describing. What type of fear is exempt from battle? Rabbi Akiva says, Kimashma'o. The Torah is being very realistic. A soldier who has even more than the natural and normal level of fear, a soldier who himself is so scared and faint-hearted that he won't be able to fight properly, not only is he unhelpful to the battle cause, but in fact, he's a negative influence because fear is contagious. And therefore, someone who really is too scared to fight, better to give that person a deferment and exempt them from battle. However, more relevant, I think, to a message for us is the opinion of Rav Yossi who explains that we're not describing someone who's f- fearful of the actual battle per se, but rather, scared because of his sins. And it's clear that the intent of Yossi Aglili is to describe a person who has sinned, apparently seriously or continuously, and that person is scared, but not just scared because of battle in the way we typically imagine, or the way Rabbi Kiva described it, but he's specifically scared because he understands that although Hashem could punish him at any point, Hashem could strike him down at a moment's notice, even when he least expects it because of his past sins, but nevertheless, it's more plausible and perhaps, in his mind, more likely than if Hashem really is upset at him. And again, this is a person who understands about himself that Hashem has reason to be upset at him. That it's more plausible that if he goes out to battle and he's in a naturally and objectively dangerous situation, that would be a very easy and opportune time for Hashem to punish him for his sins. And therefore, even if it's not the most sound thing theologically, but psychologically, such a person might be too scared to go to battle and might feel safer if they stay home. Now again, it's not the most coherent theological uh, assumption because obviously God could strike the person down and punish the person even if he's at home and in the safety of his own bed, in the comfort of his own bed. But nevertheless, psychologically, I think we could all understand that a person who really is worried about being punished by Hashem might feel like going out to battle is the last place he wants to be. And says Rabbi Yossi that is the person who the Torah is exempting. Now what's fascinating is that the Gemara, in commenting on this opinion of Rabbi Yossi wants to know what type of sins did this soldier violate such that he is so scared that Hashem will punish him and that he gets a deferment and an exemption from battle. And the Gemara, in fact, gives examples of Averos Dirabonon. For example, Hasach Bein Tefila 
but man has already put on his tefillin shalyad, has already made the bracha, and now he's in the process of putting on his tefillin shalrosh, he's not allowed to talk in between and in the middle of that process. If he talks, that's wrong, that's a hefsake. But to be blunt, we're talking at worst about an iser derabanan, a rabbinic transgression. And yet, according to the Gemara, it is this or a similar type of era which would already be sufficient for a person to pull out the deferment card, I'm exempt card, because he's scared that Hashem might punish him. This amazing Gemara yields a very powerful question, and I believe an even more powerful answer from the famed Kutzker Rebbe. In the collection of the Kutzker's ideas on the Torah, the Sefer called Ohel Torah, on our Parsha, the Kutzker asks a very basic and fundamental and really obvious question, at least obvious once he asks it, on our Gemara, on our Biosiaglili, on this din. If even violating a single Isser de Rabbanon is enough to exempt a person from battle because of his high sin quotient, so to speak, exactly how big was the Jewish army? Who could possibly go to war if the bar is so high? or between or some kind of a sake. How many people could honestly look in the mirror and say, I don't even have that in my closet. I don't even have that skeleton in the closet. The only soldiers who go to battle are people who don't even violate Isiuri Durabanan. The only people who can go to war are people who are so holy and so pure. They don't even have a hefsek in Isiuri Durabanan in their ledger. Umi Yomar Zachiti Libi, says the Kutzker. Who could possibly think that they're that holy and pure? In other words, how big is the Jewish army according to Yaglili? If everyone who even did an Isidur Rabbanon is exempt, how is it possible we'd have a battle? What's going on? How is it possible to understand this at face value? And because of this question, that yields to an unbelievable, I think, and penetrating and original insight of the Kutzker. He says, who are we talking about? We're talking about someone, he says, who of course did a sin, yes, but we're talking about a person who's now a Yare Hashem, who now is Eino Over Chas V'Shalom, Shomavera. He's not sinning anymore. He already did Tshuva. And yet, despite the fact that he already did tshuva, he's haunted by the guilt of his previous activities. As the Lashon of the Mishnah was, as Rav Yosef Aglili said, he's a misyari min ha'averos shebiado. Literally, the sins that are still in his hand, explains the Kutzker, because he can't let go. He's stuck. These Averos are stuck in his hands, even though he did tshuva, even though he's not transgressing anymore, even though he really did rehabilitate himself. He's haunted by his past. He can't let go of the feelings of guilt that are accompanying him night and day because of his past indiscretions. This, says the Kutzker, leads to a person becoming depressed and so spiritually imbalanced and insecure. He's Eino Osetov Haba. If you can't let go of the past, you can't produce a better future. And somebody like that says the Kutzker, he doesn't have the right chizuk, he doesn't have the proper perspective, we don't want him on the battlefield. And this is obviously a very powerful idea which we should all think about on the eve of Rosh Chodesh Elul. And that is of course tshuva requires us to confront our past. But we can't become paralyzed by our past. A healthy avodas Hashem is based on a balance between past and future. And this soldier failed that test.